Well, Crossridge, again, good morning to you. So glad that so many of you have been able to join us uh, by this means this morning. Uh, We're glad to be able to do this for you, uh, despite whatever technical difficulties we might experience. And just so you know, if somehow we lose the feed, it will come back up. We're working on things and trying to stay on top of it all. Uh, This is an awkward thing to do. It is strange to preach to an empty room and to a camera. It's strange for you probably to be sitting in your living room and trying to do church this way. But this is the boat we are in right now. I'm just going to pray that all of that awkwardness uh, would not be a distraction to what we're doing. Lord, we come before you this morning. We come together as a church, as your people, called by you into a relationship with you and called to be your light in this world. Lord, would you give us grace as we do this? Would you help us even now with whatever distractions might be around us to focus our attention on you and your word and what it is that you're saying to your people? God, we give ourselves to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in his book entitled The Supremacy of God in Preaching, John Piper began his preface by saying this, people are starving for the greatness of God, but most of them would not give this diagnosis of their troubled lives. The majesty of God is an unknown cure. There are far more popular prescriptions on the market, but the benefit of any other remedy is brief and shallow. Preaching that does not have the aroma of God's greatness may entertain for a season, but it will not touch the hidden cry of the soul, show me thy glory. Now those words were true at the time of their writing, But I think they're especially true at a time like this. We are in unprecedented times and uncharted waters. So much has changed in just the last two weeks. Those things that we all took for granted, things like sports and the ability to travel and a bustling economy and even the regular gathering together as a church, all of those things have seemingly vanished before our eyes, at least in the short term. And while the majority of those dealing with the most severe symptoms are those who are older or who may, be, who may have pre-existing medical conditions, this virus has shown that it is no respecter of persons, athletes and actors and politicians have all proven susceptible. Every institution that we know of, schools and businesses and banks and hospitals and churches, All of them are experiencing a new reality. And what I want to remind you in the midst of all that chaos is the greatness of our God. So we're going to take a break from our regular series in the book of Genesis this morning. The next two weeks, we're going to focus our attention on Isaiah chapter 40. So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to Isaiah chapter 40 and to follow along with us as we make our way through it. We will get back to our series in Genesis on the other side of Easter, but for the next two weeks, we're going to focus our attention on the greatness of God. And this morning, we're going to key in on verses 12 to 27 of Isaiah chapter 40. I'm going to read it for you now. This is God's word, and this is what it says. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span 
enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth, When he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble, to whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Well, the words recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 40 were meant to bring comfort to God's people. Now, we're parachuting into the book of Isaiah partway through the book and even partway through this chapter, so maybe a word about context is in order. Isaiah chapter 39 ended with a pronouncement of doom. The Israelites were about to be sent into exile. Their way of life was about to be radically altered. And it is into that chaos that God speaks a word of assurance through his prophet Isaiah. And the word of assurance Isaiah brings is tied to the greatness and the incomparability of God. So in verse 9, it says, Go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. See, the good news for Isaiah's audience was found in the greatness of God. And the theme of God's greatness is found all through this chapter. Verse 18 says this, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? Verse 25 says, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And then later in the chapter, verse 28, it says, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
The Israelites were preparing for a dramatically different landscape. The thing Isaiah knows that they need more than anything else is to grasp the greatness of God. And we do as well. Donald Gray Barnhouse pastored 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia from 1927 to 1960. He was a graduate of Princeton Theological Seminary, and he was asked to come back and speak at one of their chapels some 12 years after he had graduated. And while preaching, he noticed his former Old Testament professor sitting in the front row. After the chapel had ended, his former teacher approached him, and Dr. Wilson explained that he had always made a point of attending chapel whenever one of his former students would come to preach, and that he came for one reason. He said, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders. Not sure if he understood his teacher's words, Barnhouse asked him to explain. His explanation went like this Some men have a little God. And they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God, and I call them little godders. Then there are those who have a great God. He speaks, and it is done. He commands, and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those who fear him. And Dr. Wilson said that he knew all that he needed to know about the ministry of his former students based on whether their preaching revealed that they were big godders or little godders. And I would say that a crisis like the one we are facing now reveals whether we are big godders or little godders. So my message, to borrow the language of Isaiah, is behold our God. And out of this passage, I want to draw your attention to six things we discover about the greatness of of God. The first thing we learn is that God is more powerful than we can imagine. This is what we see in verse 12. Let me read the verse again. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Notice the words. The waters, the heavens, the dust or the dirt, and the mountains. These words were chosen to convey the totality of creation. In the pagan world, you had deities for everything. One oversaw the sun, a different one, the moon. There were different gods for rivers and for mountains. It was a sort of creation by committee. Except when the gods were fighting with one another, which was often the case. The God of the Bible is not described like that at all. He is Lord over all creation, the heavens and the earth and everything in between. We also learn something from the verbs in this verse. Isaiah tells us that God measured and marked off and enclosed and weighed. Now, this is anthropomorphic language, and these descriptions are the way we might describe small-scale working or fine-tuning God measures the waters, all the waters of the earth, in just the hollow of his hand. He marks the heavens with a span, meaning the span of his hand, the space between his thumb and his pinky finger. 
the mountains that we think of as being so massive, he weighs on a little scale. And those metaphors are deliberately employed to highlight just how big our God is. To us, the world is massive. To God, the world is easily manageable. Bruce Ware is a professor of systematic theology at Southern Seminary in Kentucky. He's written a number of helpful theological books. But along with his deep theological books, he's also written a very helpful book for parents and their kids called Big Truths for Young Hearts. If you're looking for something to read to your kids in the midst of this quarantine, you might want to give it a shot. And in that book, he talks about his experience of trying to explain the bigness of God to his daughters. They were on a family vacation on the Oregon coast. His girls were seven and four at the time. And Bruce read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12 to his girls, the verse we've been talking about so far. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens with a span. And as a way to illustrate the significance of that verse, he asked the girls if they would like to do an experiment. He took them to Cannon Beach. He had them sit on their towels on the shoreline. And then he told them, look, I'm going to run into the ocean and I'm going to scoop up as much of the water in the hollow of my hands. And when I do that, I want you to tell me how much the ocean level goes down by. So he ran out to the water. He stood there. He scooped up as much water as he could. Did it change? No, Daddy. He said, now now look, girls, watch carefully this time. Tell me how much the water level changes. So he did it again. And again, they didn't notice any change. He came out of the water, got down on his knees, and explained the difference between how big God is And how small we are. See, kids naturally think their parents are big. I mean, even my kids thought I was big at one point in time. But we need to have the proper picture of God and his immenseness. He is the one who holds all the waters of the world in just the hollow of his hand. God is big. He holds all things together. That's an important truth to remember when it seems like everything is falling apart. God is more powerful than we can imagine. The second truth we discover here is that God is wiser than we can comprehend. And we see this in verses 13 and 14. There it says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? So Isaiah asks five rhetorical questions in that verse or in those verses and they all demand a negative answer. Those five questions essentially boil down to one question which is does anyone possess enough wisdom to think that they can instruct God in what he should do? Now, the term armchair quarterback originated as a description of those who like to sit in their living rooms in the comfort of their easy chair and criticize the decision-making of the quarterback they're watching on TV. But that expression has come to be an apt description of all of us who find it easy to sit back and criticize all those in all sorts of positions of authority. I would do it this way. 
I mean, you just have to go on social media and you discover that everyone has now become an expert in economic policies. The point is not that we're not entitled to opinions. The point is that we're often not the experts that we think we are. And nowhere is that truer than when it comes to our opinions about God's management of the universe. Now, Israel was about to be invaded by a foreign nation. They were about to be sent into exile. I'm sure there were lots of people saying, look, if I were God, I would never let that happen. See, for many people, their picture of God or what God should be like is just a slightly smarter, slightly bigger version of themselves. Listen, while we've been made in God's image, that doesn't mean that God is just a slightly bigger or slightly smarter version of ourselves. Theologians speak of God's communicable and incommunicable attributes. God's communicable attributes are those things that he shares with us, those things we possess as well, things like love and goodness and kindness, those moral virtues. Now, we don't possess them to the same degree that God does, But possessing those things is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And even as we're looking around our world in the midst of this crisis, we see evidence of people expressing the very image of God by their care for one another. But God has other attributes, ones that he does not share with us, ones that are his alone. These would be things like his omnipotence, the fact that he is all-powerful. Or his immutability, the fact that he does not change. And one of God's incommunicable attributes is his omniscience, that he knows everything. This is what Isaiah is highlighting here. None of us can add anything to his knowledge or instruct him. And this is especially important to remember when we don't understand God's ways. God has reasons and purposes for doing things that we don't know anything about. Later in Isaiah, he says it this way, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The British philosopher Evelyn Underhill said it this way, a God small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. Let me say that again. A God small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. The writer of Ecclesiastes put it this way, when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do do one's eyes sleep, Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. See, God is wiser than we can comprehend. Third thing we learn from this passage is that God is more demanding than we like to acknowledge, but more gracious than we deserve. Let me read verses 15 to 17 again. It says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. So God is unrivaled in his power. 
He's unrivaled in his wisdom, and he is unrivaled when compared with all the nations of the world. This entire passage is telling us that God has an asymmetrical relationship to his creation. This is to say that God has power over his creation. His creation does not have power over him. The nations, plural, are like a drop of water from a bucket. When you line them all up and put them on a scale, they don't even register. They're just like the dust that sits on the surface of the scale. And the implication is that nations that oppose God cannot stop his plan. They're inconsequential in that sense. And then in verse 16, it says that Lebanon would not suffice for fuel and its beasts are not enough for a burnt offering. So what on earth does that mean? Well, if you cannot control God with the use of force, maybe you can manipulate him with some type of religious service or offering. And Lebanon was famous for its cedars. It still is famous for them. These trees often grow to heights of 40 meters or 130 feet. The forests of Lebanon were filled with these massive trees. But Isaiah says that even if you took all the cedars of Lebanon and used them to build a fire on which you then offered all the beasts of the nation, that would be insufficient to appease God's wrath or to meet his demands. This is why I said that God is more demanding than we like to acknowledge. See, we sometimes get the mistaken notion that God is somehow in our debt because of what we've done for him. One Old Testament commentator made this insightful comment about verse 16. He said, this is the death knell to all do-it-yourself systems of salvation. Over every human effort to move God, to meet his demands, satisfy his requirements, maneuver him to our advantage, and climb into his good books, Isaiah simply writes, not enough. God is more demanding than we like to acknowledge. And as frightening as that thought might be, the good news of the gospel is that while we could never save ourselves by our own efforts, our own offerings, Jesus offered himself in our place. His sacrifice on our behalf was sufficient to meet all the requirements of God's demands. One of the songs we often Sing here puts it this way, I worked my fingers down to the bone. Nothing I did could ever atone. But Jesus, you paid my debt. See, God is more gracious than we deserve. He himself meets all the requirements that he demands from us. A fourth thing we see in these verses is that God is more secure than anything else we might be tempted to trust in. Verses 18 to 20 describe the foolishness of putting your trust in an idol. It says, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Now, in one sense, those verses are just descriptive. They simply describe the process of making an idol. The first one makes the idol out of gold and silver. The second one doesn't have quite as much money, and so his idol is made out of wood. But the last line of verse 18 reveals the great tell. 
They do this to set up an idol that will not move, that cannot save them. See, in a day of abundance, an idol might look good on a shelf, but it cannot save you in a time of trouble. I recently watched the movie, All the Money in the World. It's based on the true story of the grandson of J. Paul Getty, who was kidnapped in Rome in 1973. Now, J. Paul Getty was the richest man in the world in 1973. But he flat out refused to pay the ransom the kidnappers demanded. Now, to be honest, I've only watched half of it so far, so there's no spoiler alert. But there's a heartbreaking scene right in the middle of the movie. The boy's mom remembers that her son's most valuable possession was a small statue of a minotaur that was gifted to him by his grandfather, and it was thought to be worth $1.2 million at the time it was gifted. And so she finds it stashed in a shoebox in her son's closet. She takes it to Sotheby's auction house. She's looking to sell it quickly and at least pay some of the ransom. The director of the auction house takes a look at the minotaur and tells her the bad news. It was actually just a trinket from the gift shop of the auction house worth only $15. See, the bad news is that many people are going to be in for the same kind of devastating surprise when they discover that the thing they've been trusting in cannot deliver them in the day of trouble. Crises have a way of revealing things. They reveal what's actually important. They reveal the difference between necessity and luxury, and they reveal what it is that we look to for security and comfort. Now, we don't want to operate in fear and think the worst, but this is a good time to evaluate what it is that we're putting our trust in. Look, every one of us will be impacted in a negative way financially because of this crisis. If nothing else, the coronavirus has revealed that we are more vulnerable than we thought we were, both physically and materially. All of those things that seemed so secure just two weeks ago look shaky today. Listen, I want to say to you as a church, our hope is in something far more certain, far more secure. Our hope in Christ is something that cannot be taken away by any circumstances. These words from 1 Peter are something we can cling to. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now, Peter was writing to a church that was experiencing intense persecution. And what he tells them is that both their inheritance is secure and they themselves are secure and kept secure by God. That is far more certain than whatever idol we might be tempted to trust in. God is our refuge. So I want to say a brief word to parents in the midst of all this. And what I want to say to you is that one of the best gifts that you can give to your kids at this time is a demonstration of your trust in the Lord. Proverbs 14.26 says this, 
In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. See, when your confidence and your trust is in the Lord, you help your kids understand where their confidence and their trust ought to be. All of us are spending more time at home, so I want to encourage you not to miss the opportunities before you. Now, I'm not talking about being reckless, but demonstrating that our hope is ultimately not in any person or possession or institution. Our hope is in God. A fifth thing we learn here is that God is more active than we realize. Listen again to verses 21 to 24. Do you not know? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. See, in the opening verses of our passage, we learned that God, the way God's power was demonstrated in the universe he created. These verses now remind us of God's continued activity in our world. We don't have a deistic view of God, where he's like a watchmaker who simply wound the world up and is now sitting back and just watching as it ticks towards its conclusion. God is both the creator and the sustainer. Listen to this description of Jesus from the New Testament in Colossians chapter 1. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then it says, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is both the one through whom all things were made and the one who holds all things together. Now, here in Isaiah 40, the focus is on God's sovereignty over nations and rulers. It's the Lord who raises up princes and brings them to nothing. Again, the context is important. Israel was about to be invaded by a foreign nation. Their leaders are about to be taken captive. Their people are about to be sent into exile in a foreign land. They no doubt had all sorts of questions. And Isaiah's words were a reminder that God is on the throne. He's the ruler overall. Ray Ortland Jr. summarizes Isaiah's message like this. God is at work in the world today. It is he who raises up leaders and brings them down again according to his own purpose and for his own glory. The power brokers who seem so formidable to us with their monumental egos and pretentious ambitions are to God like little seedlings, scarcely planted, and God merely blows on them with zero effort on his part, And to them, his mere puff of air is a raging tempest driving them to oblivion. Now look, those are good words to remember in a time of political upheaval. But they're also good words to remember during a crisis like this one. God is active in the world today. God is sovereign over all the affairs of the world. Final thing we discover here 
is that God is more attentive than we know. Verses 25 and 26 give us a brief astronomy and theology lesson all rolled into one. Those verses say, To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. So Isaiah tells us to go outside and look up at the night sky, to look up at the stars. Now you've no doubt stood outside on a clear night. You've marveled at the beauty of the night sky. On a clear night, it looks like we are seeing millions of stars. Now, astronomers tell us it's actually only 9,096 stars that are visible to the naked eye, but that there are an almost infinite number of stars in our universe. The last estimate I saw was that there were about three septillion stars in our universe. That's a three with 24 zeros behind it. And what Isaiah tells us is that God knows each star by its number and by its name. That's a staggering thought. But Isaiah's not making an astronomical point. I mean, he is making an astronomical point, but not one about astronomy. So what is the point he's making? Well, he spells it out for us in verse 27. Why do you speak, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. See, God is telling his people, that despite their hardship, their way is not hidden from him. Just as he knows each of the stars by name, by number, not one of them is missing. He knows his people. Their way is not hidden from him. A few years back, I read a book entitled The Indifferent Stars Above. And the book is a record of the Donner Party. The Donner Party was a group of American pioneers from the Midwest who set out for California in a wagon train in May of 1846. 87 people set out on that journey. Should have taken them four months, but because they were led into taking what was supposed to be a shortcut, they became stranded in the Sierra Nevada mountains for the winter. Their food supply soon ran out. The winter brought freezing temperatures from which they had no protection. And one by one, the members of the traveling party began dying from starvation or exposure to the elements. By the time they were finally rescued, 39 people from their traveling party had died. Many of those who survived did so only because they resorted to cannibalism. Kind of a disturbing book. I know not the most encouraging of thoughts. But I think what I found most disturbing was actually the title of the book, The Indifferent Stars Above. The implication is that despite the fact that many of these people prayed earnestly that God would rescue them, their prayers were met by nothing but indifference. Now, I can't speak into all the the questions about the wisdom or the foolishness of the route that they they took, the shortcut, who it was that bore responsibility for that, or the timing of their eventual rescue. But what I do know is that God is not indifferent. We cannot say, why is my way hidden from you? God has not promised us a life free from trouble, but he has promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us. 
Isaiah tells the Israelites that God knows the stars by name and more than that, he knows them by name. He's not indifferent to our plight either. Now, when the psalmist looked at the stars, he actually reached the same conclusion. Psalm 8 tells us, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The point is, God does care for us. The one who put all the stars in place knows us by name, cares for us. The stars might be indifferent, but God is not. For those of you who might be tempted to worry that God has forgotten us or that he's not paying attention, Jesus comforts us with these words. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of far more value than many sparrows. See, in this time of social distance and self-isolation, you might feel like you're alone or wonder, has God forgotten? You're not alone. God has not forgotten about you. Your life is of incredible value to God. We have a great God, and we ought to behold him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your unmatched greatness. You are the one who created everything. You are the one who sustains all things by your power. And you are the one who knows us. You know each of our individual situations. You know our fears, our anxieties. You know what it is that we're tempted to trust in. And so, Lord, at this time, we pray that our full confidence would be in you. The one who not only knows the stars by name, but knows us. God, may we find hope, security, and encouragement in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.